All right, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, through chapter 2, verse 3. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, now we would pray Thee that You would open up Your Word to us, that we might see Christ, that You and He would both be glorified, and that we would have an appreciation of what Thou hast prepared for us. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Well, as I've said a number of times in the past, the book of Genesis here has everything folded into it that we were going to find elsewhere in the Bible. Every doctrine, everything can be found in Genesis, and what we're talking about today is no exception uh, to that, we have set before us in these first three verses of chapter 2 um, a time of rest. And so this is another theme that's going to go through the entire Bible, this theme of the Sabbath day, a time of rest. It's going to take us right through the Bible up to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter um, 22, where we realize and can appreciate and will be in glory. So the Bible always speaks of things that Christ has done, um, and this is no exception to that. It's going to talk about Christ. It's going to lead us to Christ. And so we can appreciate that speaking of Christ, as it does in Romans eleven thirty six, it says, for of him, that would be of Christ, and through him, through Christ, and to him, to Christ, are all things to whom be glory forever. Everything in the Bible points to Christ. It's of him, through him, and to him. In Revelation 4.11, helping expand on this truth, it says that he has created, Christ has created all things for his pleasure were they created. And that means in particular the church. And when we get to Genesis chapter um, 2 where we learn about um, Eve and Adam, that's going to take us to the um, um, appreciation where Eve is the church and Adam represents Christ and how the woman came out of him, just as the church comes out of Christ, and that is for his pleasure in particular, that we would uh, ever be in fellowship with him, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, just as Eve is of Adam. So everything in here is going to teach us about what the Lord is doing in the big picture. So set before us in in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, is a time where God rested from all his work, from all the things which he created and made. So given what we've learned so far, we've seen that in Genesis chapter 1, God has set before us what things he created and he made. Some things he spoke into existence, other things that he made. And so we can walk away from chapter 1 with a simple understanding of, well, this is what God said that he made, and I can believe that because he's God, and I can believe that he is omnipotent and omniscient, and those truths come out of Genesis chapter 1. And that, of course, is what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And I've read that many times, but I want to keep driving that in, particularly for the younger people, because they are going to face more people than I will face with respect to this simple truth, because the world has moved further and further from the simple truth. In Romans 1, 19, he says, because that which may be known of God, some things may be known of God, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. 
for the invisible things of him from God, from the creation of the world, meaning from the things that he has made and um, created and spoken to existence, the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So when the younger people are talking to people who say, in an intellectual sort of way, well, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic, you say to yourself, they are lying to themselves and they're lying to me because God has showed it to them. They are not going to walk into a house and think there's no such thing as a carpenter or an electrician or a plumber or an architect. They're not going to think that when they walk into a house, but yet they'll walk around this planet and, and pontificate that it appeared out of nothing. In any event, God says that's a cognitive disconnect. You do know. So work it out. You have no excuse when you stand before um, God. So you can know things about God because he has revealed them to everybody, but you doesn't mean you know the gospel. And that requires special revelation. And that's what Genesis 1 talks about when we said... When we quoted from um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there are things that do require the revelation of God. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 1. God has to illuminate our darkened hearts so that we would understand who he is uh, through Christ and what he has actually done and what glory is in store for those um, that love him, for those that he has chosen. So that requires a special revelation of God. And so Genesis chapter 1, in addition to sharing with us the superficiality of what he actually did in a material sense, it's about working and developing with man's heart that he would ultimately be in the image and likeness of God. Well, the same truth is is true here in uh, Genesis chapter 2 with respect to this day of rest. Um, Clearly, this day is different from the other six days because it says here that God rested on this day and that he sanctified this day, meaning he set it apart from all the other days. And this day, we noticed in the pattern of what's set before us in Scripture, he did not close this day out as he did the other days, which is why I read verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, where he says, and it was evening and the morning were the sixth day. He did that with all the previous days. He doesn't do it on the seventh day. So obviously there's a spiritual truth here that we can glean um, by uh, recognizing a change in the pattern and the particular things that God says with respect to that day. So there's an intimation that this day means something more than God simply took a 24-hour break from all of the work that he had done, speaking things into existence and creating or making things. Now, the spiritual commentary for this section here is in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 that our deacon read earlier. In that section, the Lord clearly says he's speaking about an eternal rest, and he's making reference to this section here. So we don't need to speculate as to whether or not we are understanding this the way I'm going to present it, because that's really what God says in Hebrews 3 and 4. But before we get to the spiritual, we want to start with the basics and walk through scriptures and show that God builds on this idea of a time of rest um, until we land on Christ, and eventually we're going to get to the new heaven and the new earth, all from this simple statement that's here in Genesis chapter 2. So, simply stated, there are seven days in a week. That's not novel to anybody. Go look at your calendar on the wall. There are seven days in the week, and that pattern has never changed from day seven. (laughs) There's been seven days in the week. And then um, God has said to us, very simply, he rested on this day of the week 
and uh, so should you. He's going to say that. I rested, and you should rest too. So after he set a people apart for himself, and I'm speaking of the Hebrews, he put the Sabbath day, he wrote it in stone, and um, in the form of what we know as the Ten Commandments. And those laws, those Ten Commandments, are actually written on the heart of all men. We know that because it says that in Romans chapter 2, that God has put his heart on the laws of all men. I'm sharing that with you because people think they might go to a court of law and claim ignorance of the law, but nobody will stand before the court of God's um, bar of justice and say, I did not know, because he says, yeah, you do know, you did know, because I put that law in your heart. In Romans chapter 2, verse 14, he says, for when the Gentiles meaning the people that are not Jewish, uh, which have not the law, meaning I didn't give them the Mosaic law, when they do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves. In other words, people think of the law as simply being the Ten Commandments. That is true, but it also contains all sorts of other ordinances uh, and particulars that the Jews were required to follow. So Moses gave them that, and he's saying here, just because... He's saying, I didn't give the uh, Gentiles those laws, but they're doing them anyway. Well, why is that? Well, because what it does here is it shows that the law is written on their heart. So he says, they are a law unto themselves, which show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So they know the law, and they're applying it. And he says, verse 16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. They are going to be judged by the law that's written on their heart. So if you turn your page, if you happen to be there, then you're going to get to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And he says, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. And guess what? Everybody's under the law. Remember I said the sky is blue, the law, uh, blue represents the law. Everybody's under the law. Um, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So when you stand before the bar of justice, you are not going to say, hey, I didn't understand, I didn't know. You're going to be shut up. You're going to be proven guilty by God's law. Now, as I said, the, God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger on a stone, and Ezekiel chapter 11 and chapter 36 tells us that the heart of man, the heart of unregenerated man, is stone. So that's another way of saying he went, wrote the law of God on everybody's heart. So if you look at it, Exodus chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments, I'll read the ones that are applicable. That's verse 8 through 11. That would be the fourth commandment. This is what God said. He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Now, just so you're thinking, okay, I won't do any work, but I'll have my kids work, or I'll hire somebody to do work, or I'll have somebody go out and plow the field. He says, thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. It's a repeat of Genesis chapter 2. He sanctified it. He has set that day apart. And he has said, 
on Genesis 2 that that's the day that he is going to, that, that, that is the day that he rested in. So some people would try to input, and I'm just sharing this with you as a side note, some people try to say that the six days of creation are periods of time and not actually a 24-hour period. But here in Exodus, he's saying, no, it was a 24-hour period for each of those six days. And as a pattern in Scripture, whenever you have a, the word yom day next to an ordinal number, it means a 24-hour day. First day, second day, third day. It means an ordinal number. So here God has set before us the fourth commandment of the ten. It says, I've given you this day. You're supposed to rest on this day. So naturally, God has to put teeth in his laws. Otherwise, people don't want to obey them. So when we roll up to Exodus chapter 35, verses 1 through 3, we find out that this is a pretty serious law. So in in Exodus 35, verses 1 through 3, the Lord says, And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded that you should do them. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you an holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord, Whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. Well, that sounds like there are some serious consequences associated with that particular commandment. Now you get to Numbers 15, and we have an example of somebody who did a little work on the Sabbath day. On, in Numbers chapter 15, oh, verse 32 through 36, we read, And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness... They found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in ward. They put him in prison because it was not declared what should be done to him. Well, we know what should be done. I mean, the Ten Commandments said he should not work. Now we're going to find out how, what the teeth is. We'd already heard that he should be put to death. Are we really going to put this guy to death for picking up sticks? Verse 35, And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. Take him out of the camp and stone him. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones. And he died as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, I'd say that's a pretty serious consequence for picking up some sticks. Back when we read... um, Exodus 35, verses 1 through 3, verse 4 said, And thou shalt kindle no fire on the Sabbath day. So here's a guy picking up sticks, and uh, evidently with the intent of uh, kindling a fire. Um, So, this law has some serious teeth in it. And we know what it says in Romans 6, 23. It says, For the wages of sin is death. Then the other half says, But the gift of God is eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do we get from the wages of sin is death to the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? Because it's going to be in this rule too, this Sabbath issue. So how do we get to here? Or rather, how does God get us to Christ in this particular commandment? Um, So we have a law that says, if you don't rest on a particular day, you will be put to death. And so God builds on this principle when he sets up a Sabbath year. So we're going to go from a Sabbath day to a Sabbath year. And you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. In there, God says, every seventh year, you're to let the land alone. You're not going to plow it. You're not to plant it. You're not to harvest anything. And um, you will eat the increase thereof. And not only will you eat the increase thereof, but your animals will eat the increase thereof. Well, So what he's saying is, I will bless you on years 1 through 6, 
so that when you get to year seven, you don't need to plant, uh, plant the land. You don't need to worry about that because you'll be eating the increase that I gave you on the previous year. So you don't plow it, you don't plant it, you don't eat of it. I will bless you and that you will get what you need to get you through the seventh year. Now, naturally, the Jews disobeyed God, as is the propensity of men. They did not obey him, and they did not leave the land alone on the seventh year. So if you read, I'll give you the references. If you were to read Jeremiah chapter 25, 11, and 2 Chronicles 36, 21, you would learn that the Jews had disobeyed God for a number of reasons, and he said he was going to bring the Babylonians down to them, and he was going to take them off the land. How long should he take them off the land? Oh, I know. I'll take you off the land for 70 years. One year for each of the seven sabbatical years you failed to um, observe, which means for 490 years you were not obeying me with respect to keeping the Sabbath of the land. So I'm going to take you off the land for 70 years. So we can appreciate that God is patient and that God is long-suffering, but he also means business. And let me share this with you when you get into the Old Covenant. The covenant that God had with the Jews was a conditional covenant. It's a conditional covenant. He said he'd leave them on the land so long as they obeyed him. They did not obey him. He said he would take them off the land, and he got as faithful to his promises. He took them off the land. The everlasting covenant, the new covenant, is unconditional with respect to you and me. So I want you to, in your mind, always keep those apart. There are people that think that they can get um, to a righteous state by keeping the law and God says you can't do it. Nobody can keep the law. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. So when you're reading through your Bible, keep those separate. The conditional covenant versus the unconditional covenant. And that has to do with respect to man. I'm not talking about the condition within the Godhead, but I don't want to go there just yet. So God is patient. He is long-suffering. He means business. You disobeyed me for 490 years. That would be 70 Sabbath years. So I'll take you off the land for 70 years. God will have his way even if he has to work around you uh, to get it. Eventually, he's going to burn and dissolve this entire creation, and he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. He will have his way. So let me ask you this question. Why do you suppose the Jews might want to work seven days a week, 24-7, or plant year after year after year and not observe these Sabbaths? Why do you suppose they would not want to do what God says and rest for a day? Well, for the same reason that you and I want to work all of the time, because we want more stuff. Now, the reason people work today is they, the reason they want to work more than six days a week is because they want to have more than what six days of work produces, because we're covetousness. We're covetous. Now, God in Colossians 3, 5 tells you that covetousness is as idolatry. So you can roll that sin of being covetous right into idolatry. And the second reason that they're going to work 24-7 and why we might do that is because they don't trust God to provide for them in six days or in six years what other people have to work seven days or seven years for. Now, in Leviticus 25, God says that he will um, take care of them and through the... Um, um, increase of what he would give them through the previous six years or six days, that he would take care of them in the shorter time frame to cover the longer time frame. Now, there was an example of that while they were in the wilderness in Exodus when God said, on the sixth day, you're going to collect 
twice the manna that you would normally collect because it's not coming on the seventh day, you'll already have what you need for the seventh day. So every day he said, take what you need, don't collect any more because it would rot, and, uh, which it did. But he would carry them through the seventh day by giving them a double portion on the sixth day. Well, he does that with his people today too. He takes care of you. He'll give you in six days what you need to get through the uh, seven days. So when you take those things, when you take the covetous nature of man and the untrusting nature of man, what you have is not only a violation of working on the Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment, but that really rolls back into the first commandment where God says, thou shall have no other gods before me. You can take all 10 commandments and roll them into the first one where God says, thou shall have no other gods before me. If you're not trusting in God, you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in somebody else, something else, you have another God um, before the true and living God. If you... um, Um, are covetous, you obviously are an idolater, which means you have another God. So imagine this. Imagine how God would be glorified if every seventh year we shut down all agriculture in this country. Imagine how God would be glorified, and yet we would produce enough food to feed everyone. Imagine how God would be glorified if all work stopped in this country on the seventh day of the week, and yet we had everything that we needed. Back when I was a kid in the Midwest, the stores were, in fact, closed on Sundays. And yet somehow we all got through Sunday. Nobody needed to run to the grocery store on that day. Nobody had to go down to Sears and get something. We all got through the seventh day with what things we'd had on the sixth day. And it was really very nice, actually, because we didn't have to go to the store. It was a time of rest. Now, God would really be glorified if we obeyed this commandment. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, this is what the Lord says. He says, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. In other words, I gave you the Sabbath really to glorify me and to help you appreciate your relationship with me. Now, if we actually did obey God in this area, if we did that, Others couldn't help but take note of it. Our neighbors would say, how is it that you can rest on a day and yet you have everything that I have? How is that possible? How is it possible that you can produce in six days what it takes the rest of us seven days to produce? How can you produce in six years what the rest of us takes us seven years to do? Well, maybe it's because your God is uh, honoring you or blessing you because you are honoring him. And there are Indeed, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience in the Bible, and God's word is true. So they would begin to see a relationship between what you do and how God blesses you. But that's not the road that man takes. And so the Jews took what should have been a blessing, and they turned it into a self-righteous legalistic observance which is where we are in the Gospels when Jesus is engaged in his ministry. They've taken this thing into a self-righteous, legalistic um, observance. And when Jesus heals in the New Testament, you may notice a pattern. He does most of it on the Sabbath day. So he's doing this in a provocative sort of way, not just to teach them that they're um, hypocrites and they lack mercy, but he's teaching them about what the true Sabbath is all about. He's teaching them a spiritual truth. So first he gets a few things straight with them. So in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he says very clearly, he says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So let's not get the cart in front of the horse here. Man 
was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Remember what he said in Ezekiel? It's a sign. So God is telling you here very simply, and, and he's, there's actually there's a lot more rolled into this. I'm just covering some superficial stuff. He's saying, guess what? I made you, and you need a rest. I made you, and you need a rest. So rest. Take one day of the week off and rest. Now, as far as what day of the week you should take off and rest, God tells us in the Ten Commandments that it is a day that is to be kept holy. Since we all go to church on Sundays, that's our tradition, Sunday is the day that you should rest. If you're a Christian and you find that you have to work every Sunday, you're going to be vexed because you're going to be hungry. So you're going to want to find a job that allows you to be in church on Sunday. Now, however, God specifically says in the Ten Commandments that it should be the seventh day. The seventh day is the Sabbath, and so to be in strict compliance with that, you're going to want to rest and go to church on the seventh day. And that's what the Seventh-day Advents do, and they adhere to a strict compliance because that is their understanding on this. However, however, there are seven other Sabbath days scattered throughout the year that I don't think that they observe the way they do the seventh-day Sabbath. Now, when I was a kid, I lived for uh, one year in just north of New York City. And the uh, Hebrews, in addition to observing the Jews, in addition to observing the seventh-day Sabbath, they observed every one of those seven other Sabbath days that were scattered throughout the year. And when you're in fifth grade and you look around and you find 15 to 20 percent of the kids missing, you think to yourself, what is going on here? What am I doing sitting in school and they're not? Well, they are observing those other seven days of uh, the seven other Sabbath days. Now, of those seven days, other Sabbath days, two of them are associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One has to do with the Pentecost. Four of them are in the seventh month of the Jewish year. One has to do with the blowing of trumpets, two with the Day of Atonement, and um, three of them have to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. All of those are Sabbath days, and on every one of those Sabbath days, including the seventh-day Sabbaths, the priests have to work. So not everybody is resting on the Sabbath day because the priests are doing those things that are required by God, just as I'm working on a Sunday so that I might feed God's sheep because God must be honored on his day, on, uh, on the Sabbath day. That is what he said. This is a day set apart for me. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, um, he gives us an example. In Matthew 12, 5, the Lord says... He says, have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Profaning the Sabbath, meaning they're working on the Sabbath day, and yet they're blameless. Why are they blameless? Because they're serving God and doing those things that are required to minister between himself and the people. In John chapter 7, verse 22 and verse 23, he's speaking about um, circumcision. And there the Lord says, um, and this, again, is an explanation because he's healed somebody on the Sabbath and they are criticizing him for it. He says, Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, actually it came from Abraham, but of the fathers, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. You people are, are uh, adhering to what is required and you are doing it on the Sabbath day. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Mo Moses should not be broken, in other words, so that it should be observed, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? And so he's setting this before them that, yes, there are things that are required to be performed on the Sabbath day. 
the priests are engaged in it, and they uh, themselves are seeing that their, their children are circumcised. They are taking their child to be circumcised on the seventh day. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, God, this is another overriding principle. In chapter 3, God told Adam, you need to work. You're going to have to go out and you're going to have to get a job. And Jesus affirms that in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. In Matthew 12, 9 through 14, the Lord says, he goes into a synagogue and he's talking to them. And in verse 10, we see, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? Man's got a withered hand, and they're concerned about the observance of the Sabbath day. And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold of it and lift it out? Or he's appealing to them that this is what you're doing because, quite frankly, because you're afraid of the loss of the sheep. It's not that you're concerned about the welfare of the sheep, but you're concerned about the loss it represents to you. So he's... He's uh, convicting them of hypocrisy, but there's a spiritual principle here about what the Lord did because obviously we are his sheep. How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to them, stretch forth thy hand. Then saith he to the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it forth and it was restored whole like as the other. And the Pharisees received that very well because it says, and the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him or how they might kill him. That's how well they received this instruction here. Um, So the Lord is telling us in principle here that you need to work on the Sabbath day um, to engage in certain activities. In Luke chapter 13, verse 15, he says, speaking uh, again of another situation of healing somebody on the Sabbath. He says, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? So there's a spiritual truce here. The first one had to do with lifting up the sheep. That's the resurrection. We are all like sheep have gone astray. And then followed by Luke 13, which has to do with feeding your animals. And that's what the Lord does. On Sabbath days, he's he's raised us from the dead. Uh, through the preaching of the gospel by which we are also fed. So as a Christian, you're going to have to work. That's principle number one that I mentioned, all the way from Genesis chapter 3. You're going to have to provide for your family so that everyone can eat. So if you have to work on a Sunday, it's obviously not a sin because there's the overriding principle of providing for and feeding your family, unless you're doing it out of a covetous heart. If you're doing it out of a covetous heart because you want more stuff, or you're doing it because you don't trust that God provide for you on the other six days of the week, then, of course, you're dealing with the issue of sin. There is a principle also in Scripture about trusting the Lord, and the Lord tells us that in Matthew chapter 6, 33. He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, I know what you need. I will take care of you. Spend your time and your energies focused on me and my righteousness, and I will take care of you, and I will bless you that you have everything that you need. Now, on the flip side of that coin, and by the way, it takes Christians a long time to learn this lesson, that if they actually put their tools down, they will get more done. It takes a long time to learn that um, lesson. In Haggai 1.6, he's talking about the Jewish people, and he says, You have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, this one comes home to me, and he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a bag with 
holes. <laughs> so that has been my experience in many um, parts of my life where I will go out to try to gain more stuff and I feel like I take that money and I put it in a bag with holes in it. It just disappears. So in the context of being obedient to God, more is less. You obey him, you put your tools down, and you will be more productive on those other occasions when the Lord is uh, blessing you. So again, think back to Ezekiel 20, verse 12, where the Lord says, I gave them the Sabbath to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. Now, what is a sign? A sign is something that gives you instructions or directions. It points to something else. Well, the New Testament reiterates that point. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, the Lord says that, he says, because of what preceded this, he says, he spoiled principalities and powers through the cross. He made a shadow of, um, show of them openly, triumphing over them. Now, verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. He's speaking about all of the ordinances that came in the Old Testament. He says, don't let anybody judge you with respect to those days. Verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, which are a shadow of things to come. This Sabbath day is a shadow of something that is to come. So he's given us this thing, and it's a shadow of something that is to come. It is a shadow that is cast from the reality. That's what a shadow is. There is substance behind the shadow. So he's speaking of the reality to come, and he's speaking of a rest to come. This is future tense. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, Verse 28, the Lord hits us on the head with the reality and the truth of what he's speaking about here. Here Jesus is speaking, and he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What are you laden with? You're laden with sins. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. He's not telling you you don't have to go out and get a job or work because those things don't give rest to your souls. The only thing that gives rest for your soul is when you trust in Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, rest for your souls, but you still got to go out and work, as it says in Genesis chapter 3. So this is where the Christian is today. He's at a place, he's at peace with God through the work of Christ, so there's rest for a soul. He is not laboring to get right with God and overcome the consequences of his sin. He is not in bondage to his sin. He is, however, still fighting a war with sin that dwells in his flesh. That is where the Christian is today. Now, I'm not going to read all Romans chapter 7, but there's a portion of it that is um, relevant to what I'm saying. In Romans 7 here, uh, the Lord sets before us this Um, issue that we have when we find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do and we are not doing things that we do want to do. There's a struggle that goes within us. And so he says here, um, I know that in me that is in my the flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. In other words, I want to do the right thing, but I don't find the strength within my flesh to do the right thing. 
For the good that I would, in other words, the good things that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, those things I do. So there's this battle that takes place in the life of somebody who has been regenerated, somebody who has a Christian, and they're really struggling with this issue here. So in Ephesians 5.17, it says it clearly, it says, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. So this is the experiential walk of the Christian. You're at peace with God, and yet you're still laboring or fighting with sin. So obviously there's another rest for the Christian that's in view here. And that's what is set before us in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. That's the context of it. Moses has brought the Hebrews out of the um, house of bondage, out of Egypt, and they've wandered 40 years through the wilderness. And um, then they're going to cross the Jordan River and go into the, quote, promised land. Now, out of all of the men that came out of Egypt, only two of them actually crossed the Jordan River and went into the, quote, promised land. And that was Joshua and Caleb. Why did only two go through? Because God was teaching a big picture principle here. God uses 40 years and millions of people to teach a big principle picture here. And that is, you can only enter into that promised land by faith. Simple lesson. He says it right here in verse 19 of Hebrews 3. We see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. You're not getting to glory through any works of the flesh. You'll only get there by faith. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God waited until all the men of war were wasted out. That's God's language. He waited until all the men of war were dead because you were not going to take it in the strength of your flesh. I was going to give you that land. So in the context of crossing the Jordan River, sometimes it means going into eternal glory, going to heaven. Sometimes it just means regeneration, both of which, of course, are only by faith. Now, when in the context of it representing regeneration, he sent them into the promised land with the instructions that they had to displace all of the people that lived there. He's told them, you're going to go in there, you're going to knock down their idols, you're going to kill all the people, you're going to wipe them all out. Those people that are in that land represent the flesh and they represent sin. So though you have entered into this land, you're not really at rest yet. There yet remains a rest for the people of God. And that's what he's saying in Hebrews chapter 4 here. If you look at verse 8, he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, Joshua did not give them rest because he went in there, they went in there with a sword. If Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Joshua speaking that there's another rest that's for you people. That's not the one that's in view here. In verse 9, it says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. That would be the eternal rest. That would be the one where you have received your glorified body and sin does not dwell in your body. So in verse 4 of Hebrews 4, he's making specific reference back to Genesis chapter 3, and that ties us all together. In verse 4, he says, For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest from the seventh day from all his works. And so in Hebrews here, it's talking about entering into the rest of God, entering into God's rest. And so that's a day, metaphorically speaking, that God has set apart and he has sanctified for his people. It is a day where you will not be struggling with your flesh. 
Um, because as long as you're in this flesh, sin dwells in the flesh, and it's not until you go to the grave and the glory that you will no longer be having this issue with the flesh. And so Genesis chapter 2, those first three verses there, is taking us to Christ in whom we rest, and then ultimately to eternal glory. And in, he, in uh, Revelations chapter 21, speaking of the setting apart, speaking of the sanctification, in verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 21, he says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. There was no more of these oceans of people. And I, saw, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We'll get into that more in uh, chapter 2 of Genesis. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Down in verse 8 he says, But the fearful, the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Verse 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or make a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So in terms of this sanctification setting apart, God is taking all of his people out of this world, out of sin, out of the, um, the grief and the anguish and the misery that we experience in this world into eternal glory, and the context of which is entering into God's rest, which he tells us about all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, uh, the first three verses about a special day that he has sanctified and uh, set apart, and he has done that with the intent that we would enter into that rest. And so that's what we look forward to, and that's what the Lord is setting before us all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Amen. Amen. Amen.